we are going to be in the end of chapter 5 of Hebrews, and we're going to look through the entirety of chapter 6, just because it feels like one entire argument that Paul, that not Paul, uh, some people think Paul wrote Hebrews, I'm not one of them, uh, but uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, uh, lays out here for, uh, for us, and um, so it's an interesting passage, uh, and as we're going to look at in a second, it's the third warning that he brings to these people. And so uh, we're going to be starting in verse 11, and just as a reminder, we just saw that Jesus is the great high priest, the representative of God's people, the one who brings us into the very presence of God, uh, the one who made a sacrifice worthy, the one who re- uh, represents us in a worthy manner, the one that gives us boldness before God, even in spite of our sin. We are sinful, yet he was without sin, and so he walks into the Holy of Holies. And in a sense, we have access there as well. And so what, what comes of that, uh, the writer takes a, a, a little bit of a side note. Before he dives into his next point, who is about Melchizedek, uh, the priest in the Old Testament that shows up with Abraham, before he goes there, he kind of just hits the pause button. And we're going to be in the middle of that pause. Like, all right, what, what would he say as he's reflecting on Jesus as the high priest before he dives into something even uh, somewhat more cryptic? Well, before we get there, he says, let's take a pause and let's look at our own hearts. And so that's what Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11 and following, is about. We're going to read this entire thing because we need it all to understand the context uh, and what, um, what this chapter is about. So if you would, please stand uh, just as an expression of our submitting to the Word of God. And uh, so we'll look at Hebrews 5, verse 11, and then following. He says this, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child but solid food is for the mature, for those who have, uh, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a, a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness uh, of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain uh, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. 
But if it, the land, bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and is and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things— in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the, the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Woo. Let's pray and ask God to uh, show us what he would have for us today. Uh, God, um, I don't think we have a more difficult passage in this letter than what we've just read. Uh, Father, from grammatical uh, constructs to uh, concepts to themes to difficulty to even assessing our own heart in the middle of all this, Father, what would you have for us to hear today? So God, I ask by the power of the Holy Spirit, your word would go out among us and would accomplish everything that you desire. Father, for those who need the encouragement to hold fast, God, I pray that you would build them up. Father, for those in here that need the conviction of sin and uh, possibly drifting away or find themselves just living in just total rejection of you, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Father, for the people that are kind of stuck in the middle. God, by your spirit, I pray that you would come and work with power. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, please be seated if you would. When you think back to a time when you found yourself in the middle of great difficulty, uh, regardless of what it was, it might be sickness, disease, uh, cancer, a financial difficulty, a family relationship that is either beginning to crumble or crumbling or has crumbled, a marriage that's uh, difficult or possibly even failed uh, and broken, um, a job difficulty, uh, just a sense where, um, you know, maybe life has not uh, brought what you expected, the death of a loved one, 
think of some struggle, some challenge that you've recently encountered. You might be in the middle of it right now as we speak. And as we think about trial and struggle and, and difficulty, I think there's kind of three kind of large groups of people. Uh, now, this isn't an exhaustive list, but we're going to get kind of close. The, the first is when we face difficulty, something really tough, some, something really, uh, that r- really difficult and kind of cuts us to the core. These people, uh, it, th- that struggle and that challenge drives them closer to Jesus. They need him. They're desperate for him. Uh, they know that life by itself, situations in life, cannot satisfy their heart. They, they see life and its difficulty, the brokenness of this world, and they run to Jesus. That's one type of person, one group of person. I would submit that we probably bounce between all three of these, but that's one, uh, one response. The other would say, you know what? If life is that difficult and life is that hard and God would allow that type of thing to happen in my life, if God would allow a marriage to break apart, if God would allow the death of this loved one, if God would allow me to have some sort of disease that is incurable, If God would do that, you know what? I want no part of him, and there's people that leave him. And so there's people that either the the, the struggle drives them closer to Jesus, or there's people that, that, you know what, it drives them away from him. But I think there's a large group right in the middle. It's the people of just somewhat indifferent, maybe apathy, Uh, You know, not driven towards God, not driven away from him. Difficulty hits, and we kind of go on autopilot. Kind of like a deer in headlights, we just freeze, and we just kind of stay put. And, uh, you know, we maybe become numb or passive in our faith. And so I want you to think about that struggle that you're either in or recently faced. How did you respond? Which of those three responses more categorized where you responded? And, you know, did it drive you to Jesus? Did it drive you away? Or did you find yourself in some kind of passive indifference, just kind of, you know, just going along for the ride, and it didn't have much effect whatsoever? This passage addresses all three of those. This passage hits on those because when you look at the end of chapter 6, you see in verse 18 that that these promises come um, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So this whole passage, as confusing as it is, and I will grant that, As confusing as it is, it is written to God's people. Remember, they're probably facing intense persecution. This this sentence would say that they fled for refuge, meaning they were probably driven out of where they lived. uh, And they're they're seeking safety and they're displaced. Writing to those people who face difficulty. We might not be displaced, but those difficulties and challenges and struggles in life seem to just unnerve us and disrupt life. Right? So he's writing to those people that they, who have been completely disrupted in life, might hold fast, might be encouraged to cling to Jesus all the more. And cling to the hope that they have 
there. And so uh, that word, hold fast, in verse 18 is cling. And, and remember, two, two weeks ago, we looked at the same concept of holding fast when Jesus is labeled and, and called the great high priest. Because we have such a great high priest, let's hold fast with confidence our faith. It's the same word in verse, verse 14 of chapter 4. There's this, there's this call for God's people to cling. Someone came up after the service that week and said, you know, the good illustration of what does clinging and holding fast look like? It's someone who's drowning in the middle of the ocean, and then they find a life preserver. How does that person grab on to the life preserver? They would hold fast and cling to that. That's kind of the sense of what it is in the call for God's people. And so as we look at where are we in these responses— Drive, driven towards Jesus, driven away from him, or, or in the middle of indifference. Uh, you know, when you see that, uh, what we see is the first thing that's kind of talked about is this warning and this danger, but there's an expectation of growth as uh, the writer of Hebrews speaks to these things. So what is the warning that he gives to these people? Okay, so verse, verse 11 of chapter 5, uh, about this, um, about these things of Jesus being the great high priest. We have much to say. Oh, but wait, it's hard to explain. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and since you've become, and it's even harder since you've become dull of hearing. Whew. And then he's going to start unpacking the danger. The danger is that we've become dull. Okay, that word in the ESV translated dull, other versions would, would, would translate it because the, the, the sense is someone that is sluggish, someone that's just negligent, just discarding something, somebody that's lazy. So there's a sluggishness or a laziness, um, kind of the root word um, is negated. It's, it's, a, it's a negative word. So it has the word no or the, the prefix for no. So and then the word to push. So it has no push. Think of somebody that has no push in them, no drive in them, no movement in them. They're just kind of limp. They're just kind of there. They're sluggish. They're, and so that's the sense of being dull to the word that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Just kind of no, no motivation, no drive towards knowing uh, the word. Um, and it's actually the same word. The versions translate them differently. So verse 12 of chapter 6 is the same Greek word as chapter 5, verse 11. So he says, uh, since you've become dull of hearing, chapter 6, verse 12, and so that you may not be sluggish, in a sense, so that you might not be dull again, and then he gives an actual um, way to combat that. So uh, th basically, they've lacked any kind of life and vitality and being assured of their faith. There's, there's a sense where they have just become sluggish in that. That's that indifferent middle. It feels to me that I would say the majority of people that are a part of churches in the United States do not live on either end of that spectrum. Don't live driven towards Jesus and don't live driven away from him. I think most people in, in churches across our land, especially where we are in our region, 
live in that that indifference to Jesus? Is that you? Dull, sluggish, lazy, uh, you know, kind of uh, just you hear and it's like, okay, and it just kind of rolls off your back. Is that you? Because the expectation of growth is the foil or the, the, the way to combat the, the sense of the danger to become dull and sluggish. What's the ways to combat it is that we have a faith that is in motion. Okay? Um, oh, yeah, I skipped that. Sorry. There's five warnings. We're doing the third one. Um, so uh, thanks, Jeannie. Um, all right. So you know where we are, but uh, that we have a faith that's in motion. That's the way to combat a dull, sluggish, lazy faith, or a way of hearing the word is a faith that's in motion. Look at verse 12, because the logic kind of builds on itself, and you need all of these pieces. So verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. So these people have known the Lord for some time. By that time, they ought to, not just being ones that are being taught, they ought to be teaching, meaning there's an expectation that people would grow to the place that they can give their faith away. That's sobering right there. We could just hit, you know, stop. That there's an expectation that we would grow to the place in Christ that we would be able to give our faith away. Question for all of us, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, and you can define what that is, you've been walking with him for a while are you who have you given your faith away to who have you uh taught you could not necessarily standing up but but given the truths of the scriptures to and the gospel to so there's the expectation in verse 12 by this time you ought to be teachers not one who needs needs teaching again the basic principles of the oracles of god you need milk not solid food and so he's saying uh, th- that y- y- these people need, again, an understanding of the basics. Now, basics in our world is such a negative term. I would actually uh, borrow the, the word from verse 1 of chapter 6 when he says it's the foundation. Because basics are like, oh, that's elementary stuff, that's child's play. I don't think that's what he's saying. Like, okay, you got to get these things out of the way so you can just get on to bigger and better things. I think without a strong foundation, the house falls apart, right? But if you're building a house and you continually build the foundation, you're not going to have a house. And so it's not that you ignore the foundation. The foundation is what you build on, but you don't always keep building the foundation, you ought to be moving through it. And so what is he, what is he saying? So uh, that they're, they're still stuck in this solid, um, they're, they're still stuck on the basics. They haven't really understood or moved uh, from there to build on those things. And why not? Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word, in the word of righteousness since he's a, he's a child. Unskilled in the word. So, like great Western thinkers, we owe knowledge and, um, and maybe even the Word of God is meant to be known and studied, okay? We love our studies, okay? And I, I'm all for it, so don't, like, hear me negate that. But I think we, uh, oftentimes, we leave it there. 
that it can become a study of the word of God. But I love this, this word that it, it's it, it, that we are unskilled. That we uh, kind of are ill-equipped with the word, not just from a knowledge standpoint, because any, any skill is meant to be used. And so if we're unskilled in that, you know, if you've worked around me on a work site, you know I am unskilled with most tools, okay? Some of you are great at that, okay? <laughs> not I. So unskilled is someone who does not know how to use the, the implementer or the thing or the tool. And so for us to be unskilled in the word, that goes way beyond study, does it not? It's know the word, but then the word has to be put into practice. And that's where verse 14 pushes. Verse 14 is not, um, it, it kind of sets it on, um, on ground that, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Okay? Now, the word powers in our day and age, you know, like the Avengers and all that, that's not what's, you know, just, it's the ability to uh, discern. So that, that we would have, for us to be mature in Christ, to be mature in the word, that the ability to discern, which is defined at the end of the verse as distinguish good from evil, that, that our ability to do that is trained how? It is trained by constant practice. Do you, see here the, do you hear the tie between unskilled and constant practice and training? That you, you, we know the word. The word becomes uh, a knowledge to us. It starts to grip our hearts. Then we start to live it out. It starts to change what we do. It starts to change the way we look at things. We say, you know what? That's really not of God. And I've never seen that before because the word by his spirit is revealing it. We begin to see the skill of having the word of God change us. And that idea of constant practice is, you know, if laziness is the dullness, constant practice is the immediate opposite of that. And so it's not as if we go and we're, by our determination, we're going to become more and more godly. You know, rah, you know, go people. It's, here's the word, I'm going to live it out, and as I constantly practice what it is to live it out, I grow in my ability to understand good and evil. I become skilled in the word of God. So a faith in motion is knowing the word, but it is also seeing it apply in life. So, are you one that comes on Sunday morning, hears the word, read, sung, uh, prayed through, and you do nothing with it? If that's you, if, if there's no exercise of trying to see the, the word of God apply to life, you probably are in that passive, indifferent middle. You're kind of sluggish in your hearing of the word because it takes deep, deep, uh, study deep, deep uh, thought and, and trying to see the word of God come out. And so one author, his name's Nicholas Carr, he wrote, um, actually it was about seven, eight years ago, he wrote just about how technology is shaping our minds and lives. So imagine 
you know, seven years ago, and then the explosion of, like, every technology thing in the world. He said, once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Okay, scuba diver goes deep, right? Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. That's what technology in our culture has done to, to the way our minds actually work. Instead of a scuba diver, we're a jet ski rider. Sadly, we apply the same principle to God's word. You know what? Boom. Yep, I know it. I know the gospel. Yep, I can uh, profess my faith. Jesus died for me, my sin. Uh, he died. I, he rose from the dead. I, I profess my faith, and I'm good. We, we jet ski across rather than like a scuba diver dig deep. So the expectation of growth is a faith in motion. Okay, um, But then there's also an understanding of the word. And, and so the understanding of the word is, the, is what is being talked about in the beginning of chapter 6. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Just so that we don't understand. It's not throw the elementary things out, that, that idea of leave. He, he expounds on it, not laying again a foundation of repentance uh, from works and faith. And so, um, so it, it, it's this, the foundation is there. We need to not just cast it off, leave it, but we need to go and build on it so that we don't keep laying that foundation as we talked about earlier. It's the premise that you can't have advanced calculus without two plus two equals four, right? You know, if I walked into a university classroom and I spoke on, on basic addition, I'd get laughed out of the classroom, as I should. But it's not that that can just be pushed aside. Uh, you know, two, two, two plus two doesn't equal four anymore, and we're often running on real math. That's not how it works. It, it's one builds on the other uh, so that there's a basis uh, for the greater and deeper and more involved study of things. And so for when we're going to move on and, and build on the, great, on the principles and the foundations of, of the scriptures, that's what is going. And so what is part of the basic principles of the word, and so this is what is is there. And so, some people, based on the grammatical usage of the word, there's a little bit of debate as to which one goes with what thing. But for the for by and large, he's saying not laying again a foundation of repentance. Some some versions actually link repentance and faith and faith together. Um, some, uh, regardless, it's a foundation of repentance and a foundation of faith. And it's not a foundation of, of faith that is based on our works. It is, uh, it is repentance from the works um, and things that we did against God. So the foundations are repentance and faith, uh, the instructions about washing. Most likely that's a reference to baptism because the, the verse in, in verse 4 is a word, the, the word enlightenment translated in the English became in the early church uh, that Greek word, was, a, was used to describe baptism, even though it's not the word for baptism. Um, so most, most scholars are saying, all right, so the elementary things, the things that the basis, the foundations, are repentance and faith, the ideas of what it is for baptisms, the laying on of hands, you know, the idea of the Spirit coming on the people 
which we'll see in a second why that is, the resurrection of the dead, that Jesus truly rose from the dead, truly conquered death, and then eternal judgment that every single one of us would face. And he says, you've got to move on from that. That's interesting, because that's a pretty exhaustive, great list. But he's not saying leave those things, but he's saying build on those things, put those things in practice, become skilled at living those things out and having that change your life so that um, we do not become sluggish and dull. And so there's a deep understanding of the word. And so, but also, uh, then we get into the danger of falling away. And the danger of falling away is the most debated part of this entire book, okay? Verses four to six. So the danger of falling away. So I don't know if you caught it, but I'll read it again. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then they have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Did he just say that it's impossible for these people, if they fall away, to be restored to repentance? Is that really the words that we just read? Yes. You know, when you look at the Greek, and that's what the words mean. Okay, there's kind of like, yep, that's it. There's kind of no wiggle room. Uh, there's, uh, it's not like, uh, we got an out on the word impossible. Um, it, that's what's written here. Okay, and so who is he talking about? Now, there are about four major views among God's people of who is he talking about here. So let me submit I think there's a change in, in who he's speaking about. And here's why. I think verse 1 of chapter 6, he's speaking to his audience. Okay, let's us, you know, move on from uh, or, or grow into maturity uh, so that we don't have to lay again these things. And, if, and, and we'll do this if God permits. I think he goes on an, an example or a footnote about the um, a, a particular struggle of God's people because then he comes back in verse 9 and he says, well, I'm not talking about you. So in verse 1, he's definitely talking about them. In verse 9, he says, well, that's not you. At what point does it flip? My, I would contend that it's in verse 4. Uh, Others would say, you know what, it's, he's always talking to these people. Other scholars would say some different thing. He, he says in, in verse 9, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Like, well, that's, that's not what I'm talking about is pertaining to you. And so the four major views um, is one that this is just a theoretical possibility for people that could never happen to the people that are reading this letter. That's one, he's just on an excursus about what might happen. But it's not really possible because these people are in Christ, they, they have been saved, and they can't lose their salvation. I'm not sure that's a, a great read because why write it if it's not really possible? But some, some would hold that. You can tell I 
don't hold to that. Some would say um, that, you know what, this passage is talking about straight up somebody who knew Christ, who had faith in Christ, who was in the kingdom, has fallen away, and now they have lost their salvation. And you can see how these words might get you there. But what about the passages where, Je- where Jesus says that no one can snatch someone out of my Father's hand? What about the passages where, where God says, um, you know, I, I knew you before the foundation of the world. I adopted you, you as my sons. I chose you to be mine. What about those passages? He chose you, and then you can lose that choosing, or you can lose that adoption. It seems like it kind of pushes against the reality of the rest of Scripture to say, these words are saying you can lose your salvation because Jesus says, no one can take you out of, out of my hand. I and the Father are one. And so I, I would actually submit, because salvation is a work of God and not of us, it is God who saves through the blood of Jesus. If Jesus has paid for the sin of you, or your sin and rebellion against, against God, you are secure in your salvation has been paid it is finished the righteous died for the unrighteous you and me and so i would say you can't lose your salvation because it is not a work that we did it is god's work and god does not change some would say you know what this is written to uh believers uh and but these things happen in falling away there's actually a loss of um of kind of uh not not salvation, but of rewards and of uh, when someone enters into glory, that's what's, that's what's being discussed here, that, you, that there is a, um, a sense where that affects uh, eternity uh, in, in those senses. I would submit to you that these phrases, though they're stark, are speaking to people that have been around the church— have been involved in the church, have experienced all the things of the church, have been a part of God's covenant community, yet were not, uh, were not um, those who had salvation by faith in Christ. And here's why. Um, and you can quibble with me, uh, but the, the, the word for enlightened there in chapter 6, verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, that word enlightened was then later used by the early church to talk about baptism. So it's not like a guarantee, but the ones who had experienced and seen, maybe seen the light uh, for a time, maybe even experienced the sign of baptism, those who have done that, in, the, in that case, the person that has done that, who's maybe tasted the heavenly gift, um, what exactly that is referring to is difficult. Is it something from God, or is it um, uh, the tasting is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word, and the powers of the age to come? It's basically, I would submit to you, those who are around the things of God, fully involved even, maybe even to the place of baptism, but have not, do not have real faith. Why do I say that? Is remember Jesus and the sower, the parable of the sower. He throws out seeds. Some falls on the path. The next uh, part, it falls on rocky ground. Remember that? And what happens to those seed? 
they actually they actually germinate and they take quickly and they grow but they have no root and they're snuffed out and so the reality is is that there's there is nothing to that faith is the point that Jesus is saying that there's there's some sense where it, things things start to grow but they don't take because they're not real chapter 3 verse 14 of Hebrews for we have come to share in Christ we know we are in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end how do you know if you are in Christ you're, somebody might be saying uh oh am I one of the ones that's just around the church but not knowing Jesus or do I know him in a sense, perseverance is the test of, of, the, of a genuine faith. Those who persevere in their faith, uh, verse 14, those who will continue to hold firm to the end, those are the ones who share in uh, the faith of the gospel. Man, there's a lot more to do. I think I might need a second sermon on this. <laughs> Fast forward. Um, so if that's the danger of falling away, we'll, we'll go there. The, the results are like a land that, that, that gets rain and then produces crops or gets rain and produces weeds. One is blessed, one is cursed. Uh, how do you know you see the evidence of that, 9 and 10, that these people are living their faith out? What difference does all of this make? Why is he writing this warning? We've got to end on this. Is the steadfast anchor for the soul. Verse 11 and 12 gets us there that we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, same word as dull, but imitators of those who have, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The danger is that we are sluggish and not growing. To combat that is a fervor and an earnestness so that you won't be dull. You know, an intentionality, a zeal, a pursuit of the things of God. What does it show up as? It, is, it shows up as those who live in faith and patience, waiting for the promises of God. Man, that's un-American. Faith, patience, and waiting for God to work. That's what the evidence of faith is. Abraham did that with, uh, with how God blessed him initially uh, in his uh, potential sacrifice of Isaac as, he's, as it's being referenced here. But let me just unpack one other thing in verse 18. God said to Abraham, I'll bless you and multiply you. That was the promise to Abraham. And he swore an oath on top of it. So just in case God's word wasn't good enough, he swore on top of what he promised, okay? But he can't swear by anything. It's like, you know, on my mother's grave. You know, there, there's none of that that God could claim. He had to swear by himself because that was the greatest authority that he could hold to. And so by two unchangeable things, what are they referring to? Is the promise of the purpose of God and then also the oath that he swore on top of it. So he, he has an unchanging promise and an unchanging oath that confirms it. Those two un unchangeable things, therefore it's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast. 
we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place, into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. What's a forerunner? A forerunner is somebody who goes out before uh, other people. You think Lewis and Clark. They were the forerunners of our country across uh, our country to the west, right? Did they just go and make maps to the west and so that they could have their name in the history books? No, they went west so that what? They could bring others with them. So Jesus is the forerunner in the presence of God so that he might bring us with him also. And so when you are facing difficulty, trial, struggle, relational breakdowns, sickness, disease, financial struggle, a question of life itself, the encouragement of the book of Hebrews is that we would cling to Jesus. Why? Because he is one who makes good on his promises. He is one who is promising, even in the middle of this difficulty, there is something greater. He's saying, don't give up. Become earnest in pursuing him so that he becomes that sure foundation and anchor, that steadfast and sure thing that we base our life on. Sorry for the abbreviated version of those points, but I, I, I pray that we would be a people that would be categorized as mature. And that is ones who delve deep into knowing God and practicing and living out his word among us. Let's pray. Uh, God, um, would you take your word and would you maybe help mine to help in some way for an understanding god your word conveys that you are unchangeable your word is calling us to hold fast and to hope your word uh, is pushing us to not be sluggish or lazy just along for the ride god because if we're not learning we're dying and so father i pray that you would do uh, great things in our midst that you would awaken us awaken in us an earnestness and a zeal and a fervor to know you god not just study your word but father have it change the way that we live by constant practice we would become skilled at seeing your word change the way that we live the way that we view life the way that we view you uh, father that you would be at work in it god use your word uh, by the holy spirit in us God, make us people that are earnest to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.